Hello and welcome to Halfwit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. Okay, Kylie, what do we have for our listeners this week? This is one of those actually not so long ago. And actually, actually not so long 1975. ago? 1975. Hey, there we go. Yeah, That's see? definitely a Jonathan not so long ago. <laughs> All right, folks, buckle up because uh, this week is um, a little bit long. Uh-oh. Um, we're covering some of the true crime favorites, rich people, kidnapping, bank robbery, brainwashing. Okay, uh, maybe- uh, All of those in this episode? Yes. What? <laughs> Uh, This week, I'm covering the September 18th, 1975 capture of heiress-turned-bank robber Patricia Hearst. Okay, I I don't recognize any of that, so I am ready for a story. Okay. Gonna (laughs) nestle on in. Oh, dear. (laughs) So, as her name implies, Patricia Hearst, apparently, um, she actually doesn't, she doesn't like the nickname Patty that, like, a lot of people use. Her name implies that she doesn't like the nickname Patty? No, I wrote it weird. It's fine. Okay. She doesn't like the nickname Patty. Good, End good, of story. good. As her name implies, Patricia Hurst is the granddaughter of William Randolph Hurst, creator of the largest newspaper, magazine, newsreel, and movie business in the world, and who I briefly talked about in episode one, along with Joseph Pulitzer and the Newsies. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. We're bringing it way back. <laughs> um, so Patricia was born on February 20th of 1954 in San Francisco, California. She was the third of five daughters of Randolph Apperson Hearst and Catherine Wood Campbell. So because Randolph was only one of many heirs and didn't have control of the Hearst interests, her parents didn't consider it necessary to take measures for their children's personal security, so like no bodyguards and that kind of stuff. And uh, they probably regretted it after what I'm about to tell you about. (laughs) Or they planned it all along. I don't think so. (laughs) They cared that little. Oof. Ow. Scrooge McDuckin in their piles of money. No, they didn't have the money. That's oh, they the thing. Didn't have they the didn't money. they didn't have the the Hearst fortune and stuff. So oh, like like yeah, they yeah. weren't poor. Like they were not badly off. They were well off. Yep. But they didn't have, you know, the the Scrooge McDuck money. <laughs> well, maybe that's why they didn't get bodyguards for their whole family. They right. weren't Scrooge McDuckin. Right. They weren't Scrooge McDuckin. So they didn't think it was necessary to get security for their kids because I am now they were so far up. so far removed. Yes. Were you good? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. there? All right, great. Yep. Okay. So, on February 4th of 1974, 19-year-old Hearst, a sophomore at the University of California, Berkeley, was studying art history, and she was kidnapped from her Berkeley apartment, um, which is where she lived with her fiancé, Stephen Weed. The kidnapping occurred less than three months after a November 1973 San Francisco Chronicle story in the Society section that announced the Hearst-Weed betrothal. And included the apartment's address. Well, that was, that was just poor. silly. That was silly, yes. Um, so an urban guerrilla left-wing group called the Simbanese Liberation Army, or SLA, I'm going to probably call it SLA for the most part, Okay. Um, claimed responsibility for the abduction. The kidnapping was partly opportunistic, considering Patricia and Stephen lived near the SLA's hideout. Um, according to their testimony, the group's intention was to leverage the Hearst family's political influence to free two SLA members who had been arrested for the killing of M- Marcus Foster, like earlier that year. Okay. So some quick background to set the scene. The Simbanese Liberation Army was formed as a result of the prison visitation programs of the radical left-wing group 
Vencermos organization and a group known as the Black Cultural Association in Soledad Prison. It combines South American-style urban guerrilla movements with Regis Debray's theory of urban warfare and ideas that were drawn from Maoism. So SLA's leader, Donald DeFreeze, what a name, DeFreeze, I like it. Oh, yeah, like like cool. Freeze, like Batman, the Freeze guy. Oh, geez. Mr. That's, Freeze. Mr. Freeze, yeah. <laughs> um, so Donald DeFreeze went by the alias General Feel Marshall Sink, which is just a wild, wild we name. Got, we got Force Comet. We got Field Sink. I know. We're just hitting all of the fun names. Um, but he escaped from Soledad State Prison and wrote his manifesto titled Symbanese Liberation Army Declaration of Revolutionary War and the Symbanese Program. And according to his manifesto, the group name was taken from the word symbiosis, which they defined as a group of dissimilar bodies working together in harmony. So that was like the idea of the group was that they're different groups, but they work together. So they're venom. Hey, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The symbol of the organization was a seven-headed cobra. So venom. (laughs) Like has venom. I I guess, yeah. That's Um, hmm. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) Um, and so the symbol was likely copied from the ancient Indian guardian of water, the seven headed Naga, which with each head representing one of the seven principles of Kwanzaa, which is what they said. Yep. Um so DeFreeze's intention was the unity of all left wing struggles, aka feminist, anti racism, anti capitalist, all those things. Um, with all races, genders, and ages fighting together as a unified front so that they could live together peacefully. This is extremist? This sounds like a good thing. Well, they did other things. Okay, we'll get and there, it sounds like. The theory like. behind it feels not so bad. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The uh, later execution of stuff is is not so great. So... The SLA are widely regarded by American law enforcement as the first domestic terrorist group to rise on the political left. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Okay. We that were tracks. right there. I could have waited a second. Mm-hmm. So now that we know the SLA, who the SLA were and what they generally stood for, let's jump on over to the impetus for this kidnapping, the murder of Marcus Foster. On November 6, 1973, in Oakland, California, two members of the SLA killed school superintendent Marcus Foster and badly wounded his deputy, Robert Blackburn, as the two men left an Oakland school school board meeting. And to make it even more clear that the murder was the plan, the hollow point bullets used in the crime had been packed with cyanide. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, not nice. No, extra mean, actually. So despite being the first black school superintendent in the history of Oakland, the SLA had condemned him for his supposed plan to introduce identification cards into Oakland schools and called him a fascist. Okay. But the reality was that Foster had already withdrawn his support of these ID cards at the time of the murder. Oh, this is not looking good for SLA. No, it, I, I now it's am not. seeing why. Also, I am now regretting my the, using the acronym because SLA also stands for School Library Association. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep. Um, so my SLA School Library Association disregard this this acronym. It's not about you, <laughs> or is it? No, it's oh. not. Um, so he had withdrawn his support of the ID cards. So on January 10th of 1974, Joseph Ramiro and Russell Little were arrested and charged with Foster's murder. So those were the people the SLA were trying to get out of prison to leverage and kidnapping Patricia, which unsurprisingly didn't work. One famous teenager is not equivalent to two murderers. 
Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so apparently the FBI had found documents in an abandoned warehouse that the SLA intended to do something on the full moon of January 17th, but took no precautions, didn't really have like, you know, more patrols out or anything like that. They were just like, nah, they're going to they're going to get up to their their hoodlum ways or whatever. And we don't really care. I'm assuming they weren't at this point branded a terrorist group. They were just kind of a group that existed. It might have been the beginning of that kind of like label because it feels kind of silly well because it was post murder of a school board person so like with cyanide yeah but like they (laughs) don't have more people stationed around that's what you just said right the police didn't or the fbi didn't silly it sounds very well i mean yeah that was probably not a great choice if they had intel that they were going to do something they probably should have planned accordingly and they didn't yeah so like Pretty typical of the FBI, though. We Pro- keep we keep hearing more and more about the FBI doing things like that, where they have been warned many, many times and ignore the warnings a lot. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. So anyway, the SLA didn't actually do anything until almost a month after this point. But, okay, now I don't blame them as much. But still, I mean, like, having that knowledge and then not acting on it just seems a little lazy, but... I like how you weren't really willing to dunk on the FBI, but you did write this in a way that absolutely just dunks on them. So first off, these notes I wrote, like, almost a year ago. Oh, was this this one of the older episodes that we missed and we had to skip ahead? Yes, this is one of the ones where I finished the notes after the fact and you were like, we should just, you know, go... Save it for next year. Yeah, exactly. We're back! So... I wrote these notes a while ago. (laughs) Don't judge me. (laughs) So after Patricia was kidnapped, her family waited anxiously for some sort of contact, along with a small army of journalists who had set up shop outside of the Hearst home. On February 6th, the SLA announced that they were responsible for the kidnapping, but wouldn't make any demands until February 12th, when they demanded that the Hearst family distribute $70 worth of food to every needy Californian, um, an operation that would cost an estimated $400 million. So that's a lot of needy people in. Yeah, uh, also for a group that is a minor celebrity with no money, that yeah. that doesn't seem feasible. Right, and I'm assuming that because they have the Hearst name, they probably didn't know the like lineation kind of thing where like they didn't have the money. They probably like, "Oh, you're a Hearst, you probably are rolling in it." Yeah. Not realizing that they weren't actually in that direct line of the fortune. Mhm. This demand was accompanied by a recording of Patricia saying, quote, Mom, Dad, I'm with a combat unit that's armed with automatic weapons. I want to get out of here, and I just hope you'll do what they say. So in response, Hearst's father took out a loan and arranged the immediate donation of $2 million worth of food to the poor in the Bay Area in an operation they called People in Need. So after the hurried implementation of this, distribution descended into chaos, and the SLA refused to release Patricia. Uh huh. Also, it was far less than what their original demands were. Yes, but he also had to take out a loan to do just that much. I know. I'm. I'm so, just saying. Yeah. Of, of course, the SLA didn't do anything. It was uh, like a tiny, like two percent of what they had asked for. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So Patricia would later give her account of the kidnapping, saying that she was held for a week in a closet, blindfolded, and her hands were tied. During which time, SLA founder and leader. DeFries repeatedly threatened her to death with death. 
Um, she was let out for meals and still blindfolded um, and subjected to hours of revolutionary rhetoric. So basically, like, just forced to sit and listen to him, like, talk about his manifesto and everything. This is where the kind of brainwashing comes in. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what happens. Um, and she was even given a flashlight for reading and SLA political tracts to memorize. So, like, at night she had to memorize these things and then, like, repeat them back. And if she was wrong, I'm I'm assuming there was some sort of punishment. Yeah, I am uh, absolutely seeing the line from, we want to do all these good things, but we're absolutely an extremist terrorist group. Yeah, exactly. So, over several weeks, the SLA released recordings that included their incendiary messages and Hearst's flat voice critiquing her parents' food distribution efforts. One message from leader Donald DeFries said, quote, I wish to say to Mr. Hurst and Mrs. Hurst, I am quite willing to carry out the execution of your daughter to save the life of starving men, women and children of every race. Um, she was apparently mostly confined in this closet for weeks, after which she said, quote, DeFries told me that the war council had decided or was thinking about killing me or me staying with them like permanently and that I better start thinking about that as a possibility. So like they were being like, eh, your parents aren't doing what they're supposed to do, so either we're going to kill you or you're going to be one of us whether you like it or not. <laughs> you get to choose. Do you read these pamphlets or do you die? Yeah. Um, so this is where the various stories and things she said after the fact kind of start to contradict each other, but also trauma. Yeah, so, trauma, like, very I'm not... easy to excuse there. Uh, right, like I, I have a hard time... I think for me not believing her because in that situation, I would do literally anything anyone asked of me because I'd be so afraid. Yeah. And so, start mixing up your details because you were constantly trying to lie yeah. to yourself I mean, about things. Half the time, I can't remember what I did yesterday, like let alone in a trauma situation. Uh -huh, like, uh -huh. let's be honest. Anyway. So at one point she said that she, quote, accommodated my thoughts to joining with theirs. Um, since it was a matter of being killed or joining. In another account, though, she said that she had been offered the choice of being released or joining them. Um, so that's like a little different feel to it. Or, but... or that actually happened, but it was long after the quote-unquote brainwashing started. Right. Which... And it was like, oh, I'm allowed to leave? I mean, very light spoilers for the most recent Stranger Things. Like, the... L was given the choice of leaving a situation or staying. Yeah, exactly. But she chose to stay in a situation that she probably should have left, and it right. also wasn't really a choice because this was this option was given after she tried to leave and, and was, was forcibly stopped. Yeah. So yeah, it is very possible that she was given the the option to leave, or that she was even like afraid that leave still meant die right exactly that's another point at like what point do you actually believe them after they've threatened to kill you right repeatedly right so i i i yeah i'm along those lines too i i have my thoughts on yeah i, I don't think that there's any misremembering or misspeaking i think that's actually what happened yeah. So when she was asked for her decision, Patricia decided to stay with her kidnappers and join the SLA. Her blindfold was, was removed and she began daily lessons on her duties, especially weapon drills. And according to Patricia's testimony, another SLA member, Angela Atwood, told Patricia that she would know what sexual freedom was like in the unit. So she was R-worded by another member. Ah. Yeah. Ah, not great. Okay. Mm -hmm. took, took my brain a bit to catch up to what that was. Yep, yep. And then later by DeFreeze, the leader. So yep. not what I would call sexual freedom. <clears throat> nope, nope. <clears throat> nope. 
Um, so as part of her account of this time, she said she was coerced and brainwashed under humiliating conditions, I believe it, to make the choice to join the SLA. On April 3rd, two months after her abduction, Patricia Hurst recorded and announced on an audio tape that she had joined the SLA and taken the name Tanya, apparently as a nod to the alias of Che Guevara's comrade, Haiti Tamara Bunk Binder. Whew, that was a lot of names. Also, what? Like, Tanya came from none of those names. I think that might have been her codename or her nickname as, like, Tamara, Tanya. I don't know. Okay. Interesting choice. Uh, apparently, Again, it, trauma. <laughs> it was some. It was a nod towards Che Guevara's fight, so... Her family believed this to be the result of brainwashing by the SLA, which I agree with, while others saw her as a Stockholm Syndrome victim. Also possible. Also possible. Um, identifying with the terrorist and a desperate ploy to stay alive. Don't blame her. So Patricia's conversion divided the nation. Um, a lot of people thought she was really in it to in it to win it, and other people thought that she was definitely like a captive or brainwashed and that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. it was it was a very divisive matter like across the country. I mean you do different things when you need to survive. Like right, you, you exactly. Make, you make choices. Right. And like my choices may not be the same as your choices. So yeah. it it's there's a lot that goes into a trauma response. Yep. And the and the average person is not equipped to understand it. So yep. So many people believe that they had their answer when, on April 15th, 1974, Patricia was recorded on surveillance video wielding an M1 carbine while robbing the Sunset District branch of the Hibernia Bank at 1450 Noriga Street in San Francisco. So according to testimony, she identified herself as Tanya while telling bank patrons to get up against the wall. During the robbery, two men entered the bank, unaware that there was a robbery going on, and were shot and wounded. Um, but it wasn't by her. It was one of her other co-robbers. Mm-hmm. So the group was able to get away with over $10,000. And a witness testified that it appeared that Patricia was several paces behind the others when running to the getaway car. So maybe she was hoping if she got caught, it would be a way to get out of the group. Um but it could just be me speculating wildly. Could be. <laughs> um, in a subsequent tape recording, Hearst told the world, quote, I am a soldier of the People's Army. So kind of leaning into it. She would shortly dismiss Weed as her ex-fiance and proclaim her love for SLA member Willie Wolf, the, quote, gentlest, most beautiful man I've ever known. And he was uh, the one who was part of that whole coercion and teaching sexual freedom. freedom. Yep. So, yep. I don't believe it for a second, but mm-hmm. hey. Also, what just wild names these last I two know. episodes. Just <laughs> Willie just, Wolf. Just absolutely <laughs> wild names. I know. Willie Wolf is possibly one of the favorite names, but also he's I, a I'm not still, a good dude. I'm so. still leaning on uh, Jack Legs Diamond. <laughs> That's a good one, too. Yes. Um, so over the next 17 months, Patricia was on the run from law enforcement with other members of the SLA. Her face appeared on an FBI wanted poster next to those of DeFries and other SLA members where the FBI called her a material witness. So like not like criminal or like wanted, but like kind of. Yeah, I mean, of, technically they had yeah. a kidnapping case open beforehand. So. Right, yes. So images of Patricia with various weapons became counterculture icons. Although most people on the left, along with mainstream America, viewed the SLA as freak extremists. 
Don't blame them. Yep. So during this time, the SLA realized that they were unlikely to gain followers in the Bay Area after the murder of Marcus Foster. So they moved their organization to DeFreeze's former neighborhood in Los Angeles, where he had friends who they might be able to recruit. However, they had difficulty becoming established in the new area, largely because they relied on commandeering housing and supplies in L.A. and thus alienated the people who were ensuring their secrecy and protection because they were just like stealing. Mm. Um, At this stage, the imprisoned SLA member Russell Little said that he believed the SLA had entirely lost sight of its goals and entered into a confrontation with the police rather than a political dialogue with the public, which I fully believe. Yeah. Also, it doesn't sound like they were ever really on their goals from the history that we have of them being, you know, lesser known and everything till now. It's like they started off on what seems like a bad foot. Like they they wrote a good uh, a goal. Mm-hmm. They wrote a go- good goal, good mission. Mm-hmm. And then they immediately screwed up everything. Yeah. They so, immediately crossed that line to murder. Yeah. So that is... An indoctrination. Um, yeah. It's not... <laughs> It's not a good look. No. (laughs) So on May 16th, 1974, Tico and Yolanda, which were the code names for William and Emily Harris, entered Mel's sporting goods store in the L.A. suburb of Inglewood, California, to shop for supplies. While Yolanda made the purchases, Tico, on a whim, decided to shoplift a bandolier. Yeah, whatever. We'll take it. Yep. But when he was confronted by the store security guard, he pulled out a revolver. Ah, good. Yeah, the guard knocked it out of his hand and managed to get a handcuff on one wrist. But by then, Patricia, who had been acting as the lookout since, you know, they were on the run for the cops, um, had noticed something happening from their van parked across the street. She began shooting at the store's overhead sign, causing everyone to take cover and allowing the Harrises to escape. So, like, she wasn't shooting to hurt people. She was shooting to cause a distraction, which... That's better than trying to yeah, hurt I'm, people. Yeah, I'm still waiting for the point where Patricia does something that actually does make her like super evil with the rest of them. I'm I'm waiting for that shoe to drop, but maybe it won't. You'll see. We'll find out. You'll see. Um, but as luck would have it, they didn't get away scot free. Apparently, after the botched robbery, the Harrises and Patricia abandoned the van, but didn't clean out the glove box. So the police found a parking ticket and were able to trace it to the van to the SLA safe house where it was registered. <laughs> so nice. <laughs> yeah. The rest of the SLA fled the safe house when they saw the events of the botched robbery on the news. And they took up residence in a new house occupied by Christine Johnson and Minnie Lewison. Um, and it becomes relevant in a minute. The next day, an anonymous phone call to the L.A. Police Department stated that several heavily armed people were staying at the caller's daughter's house, so one of those two women. That afternoon, more than 400 LAPD officers under the command of Captain Mervyn King, Mervyn King. Good names, good names all around. (laughs) Um, Along with the FBI, the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, the California Highway Patrol, and the Los Angeles Fire Department all surrounded, like, the whole neighborhood, essentially. The SWAT leader announced their presence and requested the occupants to come out, and an older man and a young child exited the house, thankfully. The man stated that no one else was in the house, but the child, doing what children do best, let the cat out of the bag, and said that there were actually several people in the house with guns and ammunition. There's nobody inside, but what about the guy with guns, Grandpa? Shh. (laughs) Yeah, no. Children doing what they do best, just telling everything that you don't want anyone to know. Yep. (laughs) So several more attempts to get anyone else to leave the house were unsuccessful, and a member of the SWAT team fired tear gas projectiles into the house. 
Uh, this was answered by heavy bursts of automatic gunfire and a violent gun battle began, um, which is super great in a residential neighborhood. Yeah, not great. An- anti-great. That's the opposite of good. So about two hours into the shootout, the house caught fire, probably cool. due to an exploding tear gas canister. Because those things are flammable, FYI. Yep. Um, as the house began to burn, two women left from the rear and one came out of the front. Um, she had apparently come in drunk the previous night, passed out, and woke up in the middle of this going, what the heck is happening? Worst place to pass out ever. Yeah, what a bad nap right there. I know. That is like the worst case scenario. <laughs> Um, so all of these, all three of these people were taken into custody, but none were found to actually be SLA members. They just happened to live there and were stuck. Rough. Yeah. So while the house was actively on fire, the shootout continued. Poor choices. Um, at this point, two SLA members, Nancy Ling Perry, who went by the name Fahiza, and Camilla Hall, who went by the name Gabby, came out of the house. And according to police, both women were armed and firing at police, but investigators hired by their parents, would claim that they walked out intending to surrender and that they were unharmed. And this is important because whether or not they were armed, both women were shot and killed. Yeah, not good. So the remainder of the SLA members died in the house, including Angela Atwood, Willie Wolf, Donald DeFries, and Patricia Solitsk. Um, All kind of from smoke inhalation, burns, gunshot wounds, or some combination of all of the above. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty big commotion that was going on. So Yeah, not a, and also not a fun way to die. No, like, it sounds like a very chaotic and painful yeah, way to die. I don't think that would be fun. Um, the coroner's report concluded that Donald DeFries Fri- had actually committed suicide by shooting himself, probably when he realized that they were not going to win. <laughs> yep. After the shooting stopped and the fire was extinguished, 19 firearms, including rifles, pistols, and shotguns, were recovered from inside the house. This remains one of the largest police shootouts in U.S. history, with a reported total of over 9,000 rounds being fired, mm. about 4,000 from the SLA and about 5,000 from police. So, like, pretty evenly equipped, honestly, when it comes down to, like, yeah, pretty shooting wild. out. Yeah. Um, every round fired by SLA members at the police missed. <laughs> Ouch. And there were no casualties, casualties among law enforcement, firefighters, or civilians. So it was just... Like, Interesting how contained it was for being in a residential area. I know. Like, honest, like I hate that it happened in a residential area, and I hate that it happened at all, but I'm impressed at the ability with which it was actually contained. I wouldn't say so, ability. That sounds well, like chaos. It sounds like luck. It sounds luck like a lot of luck. is probably more likely, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, but this story is about Patricia, so we're going to go on back to her and the Harrises, who, you know, just... Tried to rob a convenience store and messed it up. Yep. <laughs> so Patricia and the Harrises actually watched the television um, siege live from their hotel room in Anaheim. And after their botched store robbery, Patricia and the Harrises hijacked two cars and abducted the owners, which is probably not the best choice they've ever made. One was a young man who apparently found Hearst so personable that he was reluctant to report his the, the hijacking and kidnapping at all. Hmm. So interesting. Sounds like she's uh, becoming more of a femme fatale. (laughs) Um, He later testified at the trial that she was discussing the effectiveness of cyanide-tipped bullets and repeatedly asking if he was okay. So those are two very different things. (laughs) I'm going to say things that make it sound like I'm still part of this crew. Are you okay? Please. Please be okay. Um, So I guess if you ever carjack and kidnap someone, that's really all it takes to make them like you? is to be nice and ask if they're okay and then talk about cyanide-tipped 
bullets? Well, I think confusion is a big element there. Mm, yeah. Confusion can really get a lot of people cooperative. That's true. So once Patricia and the Harrises released the people that they had carjacked, warrants were issued for their arrest for several felonies, including two counts of kidnapping. Shocker. Emily Harris then went to the Berkeley rally to commemorate the deaths of the SLA members. Um, And Harris recognized Atwood's acquaintance, Kathy Solia, among the radicals whom she'd known from civil rights groups like other ones. And Solia introduced the three fugitives to Jack Scott, an athletics coach and radical, and he agreed to provide them help and money. So like to help them evade police. The remaining members of the SLA returned to the relative safety of the San Francisco Bay Area and protection of student radical households and even managed to attract some new members. Not a lot, but some. Um, The Harrises and Patricia managed to remain under the radar of police, even with Patricia helping to make improvised explosive devices that were used in two unsuccessful attempts to kill police officers during the during August of 1975. Uh, That's not great. That ain't great. Nope. Not a good look. So Patricia's luck could only last so long, however, because on September 18th, 1975, Hearst was arrested in a San Francisco apartment with Wendy Yohimura, another SLA member, by two San Francisco police officers and eight eight FBI agents. Meanwhile, the Harrises and several other SLA members were arrested in various safe houses in the San Francisco Bay Area. Marked money found in the apartment when she was arrested linked Patricia to the SLA armed robbery of the Crocker National Bank in Carmichael, California, on April 21st, uh, where Patricia was the getaway driver. So while being booked into jail, Hearst listed her occupation as Urban Gorilla. Nice. And asked her attorney to relay the following message. Quote, tell everyone that I'm smiling, that I feel free and strong, and I send my greetings and love to all the sisters and brothers out there. So really leaning hard into that, that message. You know, at this point, she doesn't really need to be leaning hard into that message, it doesn't sound like. I would think I'm not. starting to be on the tipping point of, like, even if, like, the kidnapping in Stockholm and the trauma led to this point, now there's active choices to remain, considering almost all of the important people died a while ago at this point. I can kind of see both sides of it. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm saying yeah. I'm, at a, I'm at a tipping point. If we're, if we're looking <laughs> at a gauge of... On Patricia's side and no longer on Patricia's side. Yeah, you're just we're like kind right. of teetering right. in the middle at this point. I can see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so at the time of her arrest, Patricia's weight had dropped to 87 pounds, which is not a healthy weight for an adult woman, FYI. And she was described by psychologist Margaret Singer in October 1975 as, quote, a low IQ, low affect zombie. So like she didn't seem to have a lot of like agency within her own mind essentially mm-hmm. um so additionally there were signs of psychological distress and trauma her iq was measured at 112 after her arrest whereas it had previously been at like 130 which is i think a little bit above average for like or in the normal range for adults well also nowadays we know that iq tests are kind of bogus so yeah back then it mattered yeah. now it doesn't yeah um, there were also huge gaps in her memory regarding her pre-Tania life, and she was smoking heavily and had a lot of nightmares, which are also like trauma signs. But without a mental illness of defect, a person is considered to be fully responsible for any criminal action not done under duress, which is defined as a clear and present threat of death or serious inju- injury. Which she had not been under for a while. Right. So in Patricia's case, unless they could prove that she was threatened into joining the SLA, Securing an acquittal based on the claim that they had brainwashed her would have been completely unprecedented. Yeah. So, like, brainwashing wouldn't have done it 
but like threatening her to be part of the cause would essentially. But at the point where all of the leaders were taken out, she was alone with two other members watching from a distance, like who were armed had and had also already like been violent. Yeah, yeah, but they were like on her team, necess- like they weren't necessarily superior, it didn't seem. Yeah, I'm not sure how like the internal um like hierarchy works yeah. for the SLA, but I- I'm just saying for the case of their court that they're going through or whatever, it makes a lot of sense that they're not going to consider her under coercion at that point. Like, right? Yeah, that's fair. There, there were plenty of opportunities to not be there anymore. I mean, she mm-hmm. was she was the lookout. Yeah, she could. She could have left. Ran away. Yeah. She yep. chose to stay and actually be a lookout. They would have had no idea if she left. That's true. That is true. She could have just hopped in the car and left. Yeah. Um, anyway, the court um, appointed psychiatrist Louis Joylin West, a professor at UCLA, as a brainwashing expert. And Patricia spent a significant amount of time with Robert J. Lifton of Yale University, who was also a psychiatrist on coercive persuasion and thought reform. Um, and she spent a lot of time with them going over her experiences with the SLA to kind of get that coercion, brainwashing figuring out what that whole situation was. Yep. Um, According to Patricia's memoir titled Every Secret Thing, Lifton pronounced her, quote, a classic case which met all the psychological criteria of a coerced prisoner of war. If I had reacted differently, that would have been suspect, he said. So, like, that that was her saying that, like, if she had reacted any differently than she did, then he would have found her suspect for, yeah. like, not actually being brainwashed. Yeah, like, I mean, even with, like, the improvised explosives, like, that was one, like, mm, okay, now she's, like, really contributing some real damage here. Mm-hmm. But if she was like, actually, I'm not going to make these IEDs, like, then that would also have been an issue. Right, yeah. But I'm still leaning on she was a lookout for at least one mission mm. and could have gotten away. Yeah. Um. So, on to the trial. On January 15th, 1976, Patricia Hurst was arraigned alone for the Hibernia bank robbery. So the one that she was actually inside of the bank for. Yep. Um, The Hursts enlisted star criminal defender F. Lee Bailey to represent their daughter. Mrs. Hurst insisted, quote, she's primarily a kidnapped victim. She never went off and did anything of her own free will. Uh, But it seems that even a star lawyer doesn't help if the judge doesn't like you. Mm. So Judge Oliver Jesse Carter... Not Crater, Carter, (laughs) ruled that her taped and written testaments after the bank robbery while she was a fugitive with the SLA members were all voluntary, and he didn't allow expert testimony that stylistic analysis indicated that Tanya statements and writing were not, like, composed by Patricia. Like, she was not in her right mind when she wrote and said those things, that they were not, like, anything similar to how she normally would write or speak. Okay, but you're also in a different situation and have mm-hmm. been for a long time now. And like whether or not uh, Patricia or Tanya was the one, quote unquote, alive in her brain, like mm-hmm. eh, I, I'm siding with the judge on that one. Okay, it doesn't seem like a like a a, a very good defense there. That is like, oh, she's out of her right mind, and it's like, well, mm-hmm. some of that had like even if it was a defense mechanism or a survival mechanism was done of a mm-hmm. sound mind. Yeah, there's definitely um again, I can totally see both sides. So <laughs> Yeah. Um he allowed the prosecution to introduce statements and actions Hearst made long after the Hibernia robbery to be included as evidence of her state of mind at the time of the robbery. 
So like things that she said like months later, he allowed to be evidence for how she was thinking at the robbery, which is not nope, that's necessarily not great. the case. Yeah. Yep. Um, and he also allowed into evidence a recording made by jail authorities of a friend's visit to Patricia in jail in which she used profanities and spoke of her radical and feminist beliefs. But he didn't allow tapes of psychiatrist Louis Jolin West's interviews with Patricia to be heard by the jury. So he allowed these like radical rantings, but he didn't allow the psychiatrist interaction. Yeah, so that's not fair. So like that. Yeah, it's, es- it's not especially super... when like I would absolutely agree with like her mom and everything. It's like she's a kidnapping victim first, a mm-hmm. criminal second. Mm-hmm. I would 100 percent be on that side of you need to look at this as if it were a kidnapping case and then evaluate how long you can consider it a kidnapping case for. Right. Not just throw out all the all the stuff related to the kidnapping part right. and be like, this is what she did. Yeah. Um. So to top it all off, Judge Carter d- was described as, quote, resting his eyes during testimony that was favorable to the defense. So it seems a little sus to me. Just taking a nap. Just take a little nap when it's just a the little side that you don't agree with. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, so that that rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. Yeah, that's not great. So Patricia took the stand and gave her own testimony, saying that her captors had demanded she appear enthusiastic during the robbery and warned that she would pay with her life if she made any mistake. Her defense lawyer even in- provided photos showing that SLA members had pointed guns at Patricia during the robbery. Well, that's so, a like, pretty big giveaway. Yeah. Um, Patricia testified that the reason she didn't try to escape during the sporting goods store robbery was because she had been instructed throughout her captivity on what to do in emergency. And she said one class in particular had a situation that was extremely similar to the store manager's detention of the Harrises and testified that, quote, when it happened, I didn't even think I just did it. And if I had not done it and they had been able to get away, they would have killed me. So, like, she had been trained in situations very much like that. Yeah. So, like, her self-preservation instinct, in a way, was to just do what she had been told, not to be like, here's my opportunity. (laughs) Kind of fair, but still, when you're given a really good opportunity like that. I mean, it, it also, I think it also depends on, like, your strength of character, too, just, like, your own like personal yeah. will and like yeah, that- but strength of character is all like if you're going down that road, it's like a lot of people have the strength of character to never become robbers. You know, right. you know what I mean? Right. I mean, yeah, you're right. But like, I- like that doesn't I- exclude like the Harrises being mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, their strength of character, and it's like, well, it doesn't matter what their strength of character is. They chose this lifestyle, you right? Know? Right. I guess I'm thinking more along the lines of like. Self, like self-preservation instincts, I guess. Self-preservation is a pretty strong instinct, right? Because, like, I I think that like if I had been in her shoes and that and I had been the lookout for that, running away probably would not have crossed my mind because I would have assumed it was a trap. Like I would have been like, they're testing me, and if I mess this up, I'm gonna die. Possibly. So I, but also I'm suspicious of everything. So who knows? That's true. <laughs> um. So like, there are a lot of ways it could have gone. That's the thing. So on the prosecution side, Dr. Harry Kozel claimed that Patricia had been, quote, a rebel in search of a cause and that her participation in the Hibernia robbery had been um, of her own free will. I would totally disagree with a rebel in search of a cause. Mm-hmm. She was a person forced into rebellion. Yeah. 
Um, So the other psychiatrist testifying for the prosecution, Dr. Joel Fort, claimed that Patricia was not in fear for her life, although I'm not really sure how he could have known what she was feeling. Um, And he assessed that Patricia was amoral and had voluntarily had sex with Wolf and DeFreeze. Nope. Bad. Nope. Bad. Nope. Um, And those are things that she had denied both in and outside of court. So it wasn't just like under testimony. Like those are things that she had like said from the beginning of like once she was captured. (laughs) She was never on board with this sexual freedom thing. No, 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 no. So Judge Carter even allowed testimony from the prosecution psychiatrists about Patricia's early sexual experiences. Although these had occurred years before her kidnapping and the bank robbery. So like also kids make mistakes. Right. Right, but he was basically, they were trying to paint a picture of a loose woman, which is... (sighs) Also completely irrelevant. Yep, doesn't matter. Yep. Doesn't... Anyway, I could go on a very long rant about that, but I'm going (laughs) to pull myself back. So unfortunately for Patricia, her court appearance didn't didn't do her any favors. Um, She appeared lethargic, which an Associated Press report attributed the state to drugs that she was given by jail doctors, probably for like anxiety and like... That kind of thing, where they probably Any just, number like, of things. just dose her so that she's not a problem. Yeah. Typical of the time period, too. I just gave a huge eye roll since no one can see me. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, don't worry. They heard the swish. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, it also didn't really help that her defense lawyer put her on the stand, but had instructed her to decline to answer most questions. Well, that's so that a wasn't... bad look. That's yeah. not good. Yeah, that wasn't great. Um, In addition, her defense lawyer had been told by the judge that Patricia would have Fifth Amendment privileges, a.k.a. the jury would not be present for some of her testimony or would be instructed not to draw inferences um, on matters subsequent to the Hibernia Bank charges, um, which is what she was being tried for. But he then changed his mind. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, There was also an interview um, from Emily Harris in a magazine, uh, so not you know, suspecting or anything, claiming that Patricia had kept a trinket given to her by Wolf as a reminder of their, quote, romantic relationship. Okay. I don't agree, but hey. Yeah. So Patricia rebutted this by saying that she kept the stone carving because she thought it was a pre-Columbian artifact of archaeological significance, which, you know, if I thought it was a worthwhile artifact, I might keep it too. Yeah, why not? Also, you need, after everything she's gone through, I'd be like, I need a little joy. Yeah, here is something (laughs) that I like. Yeah. So needless to say, the prosecution used Emily Harris's interview and members of the jury later reported that they found the pendant was powerful evidence that Patricia had been lying Mm. about a lot of things, apparently. So in closing arguments, the prosecution barely acknowledged that Patricia had been kidnapped and held captive, instead saying that Patricia had taken part in the bank robbery without any coercion. No, that's not fair. Nope. And for anyone wondering about the sexual assault issue, he suggested to the jury that as the female SLA members were feminists, they wouldn't have allowed her to be R-worded. Yep. But that's Assaulted. You can say assaulted. Assaulted, yeah. So this man later became a judge. Yeah, that's typical. That's not great, yeah. Um, But Patricia would later say that she was deeply disappointed in her defense lawyer's closing statements, claiming he had lacked focus, appeared as though he had a hangover, and spilled water down his front while making a disjointed closing argument. So he was not in good shape. Phoning it in. Oh, absolutely. 
Um, From this description, it probably comes as no surprise that Patricia was found guilty of bank robbery and using a firearm during the commission of a felony on March 20th of 1976. She was given the maximum sentence possible of 35 years imprisonment, pending a reduction at a final sentence hearing, which Judge Carter declined to specify. So who the heck knows what that meant? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So fun. But then, good news for Patricia, Judge Carter died before that final sentencing. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh about someone dying, but... <laughs> no, they're stupid people in power, and you can laugh at uh, people in power dying. It's the punch punch up, not down. Yep. Yeah. We can punch up. We can punch up. So, a new judge, Judge William Horsley Ork Jr., determined her sentence and gave her a much lighter seven years in jail. So... That's better. Yes. Uh, while in prison, Patricia had some health issues, including a collapsed lung, which required emergency surgery. Yikes. So, like, that's terrifying. Yep. Uh, this prevented her from testifying against the Harrises during their trials. Um, after this, Patricia was held in solitary confinement for security reasons, because, you know, people knew her name and knew her face. Um, and may or may not agree with her, and jail is a very dangerous place to be in either situation. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um but solitary confinement was probably absolutely miserable. But luckily, she was granted bail for an appeal hearing in November 1976 on the condition that she was protected on bond. And her father hired dozens of bodyguards for her. Good job. Yay. <laughs> Superior Court Judge Talbot Callister gave her probation on the sporting goods store charge when she pleaded no contest, saying that he believed that she had been subject to coercion um, amounting to torture, essentially. Which I kind of Fair. agree with, yeah. Yep. The California Attorney General even said that if there was a double standard for the wealthy in this instance, it was the opposite of how that generally went, and that Patricia had received a stiffer sentence than a person of lesser means might have, partially because of her name and who she was related to. Right. Um, and even though brainwashing wasn't a legal defense, he noted that this whole ordeal had started with her being kidnapped. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Yep. So unfortunately, appeals failed and the Supreme Court declined to hear her case. So Patricia's bail was revoked in May of 1978. This time, the prison didn't take any extra precautions. That is, until she found a dead rat on her bunk on the day when William and Emily Harris were arraigned for her abduction. Mm, Okay. So now threats are happening. Yep. So side note, the Harrises were only charged with kidnapping. Not kidnapping for ransom, which holds a more serious charge. And Even re- though it literally was for ransom. Yep. And were released after only serving a total of eight years each. What? Yeah. So public opinion was pretty mixed when it came to Patricia's reasons for participating in the robbery. And then the Jonestown massacre occurred, which kind of um, overrode everything, first yeah. off. Yep. Um, and gave a lot of people proof that brainwashing well and truly could convince people to do just about anything, including drinking poison and forcing others to drink poison, knowing it was poison. Like when was Manson? La... Like around what later, time? Later, I think. Oh, later. I think, okay, I think early eighties, maybe. Okay, I, I just didn't know when Charles Manson was a thing because I was. I'm like, shouldn't it have been known that that was a thing at that point? Yeah. But... Um. Yeah, I think I think he was a little bit later. Okay. Yeah, um, I'm on board. Yeah. But, like, the Jonestown Massacre was really, like, one of those big things where people went, oh, someone can smooth talk you into doing literally anything if they're good enough. Yep. So, eh. 
Um, so Representative Leo Ryan of California had even been collecting signatures in the weeks before he was murdered while visiting the Jonestown settlement in Guyana. And to turn to my father's favorite actor, John Wayne, uh, he spoke after the Jonestown cult deaths, pointing out that people had accepted that Jim Jones had brainwashed 900 individuals into mass suicide, but for some reason wouldn't accept that the SLA could have brainwashed a kidnapped teenage girl. Yeah, a little bit crazy. There. Yeah. Because she was still a teenager. Right, right, right. She yeah. was young. She was a teenager when she was kidnapped and all this went down. Um, she wasn't even legal drinking age in California. Right. Right. And like, so, <laughs> although at this point now, we also know that grooming is absolutely a thing. Mm-hmm. So th- mm-hmm. there's a, a lot more that we know now that they turned a blind eye to or didn't want to learn more about back in the yeah. 70s. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and like, then, like uh, we always like to joke, because of um, because of sawbones, real medicine didn't start until the eighties, and yeah. even then it was sketchy. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, um, yeah. Uh, so, luckily for Patricia, President Jimmy Carter commuted her sentence um, to the twenty-two months served, freeing her eight months before she was eligible for her first parole hearing. This release, however, had pretty strict terms, and she remained on probation for the state sentence of the sporting goods store plea. Um, She recovered full civil rights when President Bill Clinton granted her a pardon on January 20th of of 2001, which was his last day in office, Um, which is a side note, losing your right to vote even after you've been released from jail and like pardoned is insane. Insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's insane. Anyway, so two months after Patricia was released from prison, she married Bernard Lee Shaw, a policeman who was part of her security detail during her time on bail. No, no, this is someone who's been groomed and kidnapped, and like another authority figure is like spending a lot of time with her. Like it feels bad. Uh, I don't uh, know. It feels bad to me. Uh, I, I can I see guess... where it's an awe thing because it's like, oh, someone who is you know around and protecting her all the time, nice. But it to me, it kind of feels a little more like like obviously not this officer was doing it intentionally. But yeah. it, it feels like a uh, a groomed mentality. Well, uh, what that makes me sad. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay, because my my next thing was gonna say this makes me think of the Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner film, The Bodyguard. <laughs> oh, it could be. I'm, or... I'm not saying I'm not saying that your uh, insight on this is wrong. I'm saying. My initial reaction wasn't ah, it was ooh, another authority figure. Uh fair, but you're also like anti-authority in oh, general. Oh yeah, absolutely. More so than I am. Right, right, right. Um, um. Also, the other the other one that I thought of was my, one of my personal favorites is Chasing Liberty with Mandy Moore, where she's a president's <laughs> daughter. Yes. <laughs> um. Either way. Patricia became active in charities and other fundraising activities, including a foundation helping children with AIDS. She also published a memoir that I mentioned before, mentioned yep. before, yes, about her experiences titled Every Secret Thing. So if you want her side of the story, go check that out. She also had a decent acting career, including Crybaby and the episode Lord of the Pies in season three of Veronica Mars. Okay. <laughs> where her character was the heiress of a fictionalized Hearst family, losing loosely based on aspects of her own life. So that's kind of fun. I was about to say, I'm like, I feel like Lord of the Flies could be very, uh, very linked 
to what was yeah, going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and to wrap it all up, Patricia and her dogs compete in dog shows. Her Shih Tzu Rocket won the toy group at the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show at Madison Square Garden on February 16th of 2015. And in the 2017 show, her French bulldog, Tuggy, won best of breed and Ruby won best of opposite sex. So we got to end it on a high note. Very cool. <laughs> so she she recovered. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that she went through all of that, regardless of how coerced, uncoerced, choice, whatever. It's re- regardless of me being like, oh, where's my meter on how she's acting right now? It's mm-hmm. like, uh, that's still a lot to go through, no matter how much you try and look at it or spin it. It's, it's, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. No, I, I definitely would not want anyone to ever have to go through that because I can only imagine that whole ordeal was like horrific. Yeah. Yeah. So is that it? That's all I got. Awesome. So now we're on to our call to action. We. Um, I want to leave it short this time. Okay. Leave us a rating or review on anything that you listen to. So yes, wh- please. wherever you are listening, leave us a rating or review. Yes. That's all we want. Um, I know a lot of people get confused just because I help moderate the Buzzsprout Facebook group as to where they can direct their listeners. If you are on an iPhone or any Apple device, Apple Podcasts, extremely easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, Make sure you're not leaving a review for Apple Podcasts itself, (laughs) because apparently there was a recent rash of that uh, in the podcasting world where they must have moved where their uh, rating review area is. And it started confusing people as to whether they were leaving reviews for their podcast or if they were leaving reviews for the app. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. So really easy if you're on any sort of Apple device, Apple Podcasts, that's the best place to rate and review. Mm -hmm. If you're not, uh, we have a link down in our show notes for Podchaser, Mm -hmm. which is a device agnostic uh, platform where you can leave ratings and reviews. You can also listen on Podchaser. They don't Mm -hmm. have an app, though. I don't know why. seems a little silly. They should Mm -hmm. get on that. But that is the best device agnostic place to go leave ratings and reviews. Um, Spotify? Can you leave reviews? No. Nope. Man, I thought you could. Nope, nope. Uh, you can on Podcast Addict. That's what I listen oh, on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Podcast Addict has ratings and reviews now. They did yep. it before. I, I use that one, too. Yep. Yes. But anyways, that's enough because it's supposed to be a one thing called action. Thank you to the Fishermen for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find the link to their SoundCloud down in our show notes. Is it time? I believe it's time. Fun facts. Fun facts. Woo. So We should make a jingle. <laughs> We could make a fun fact jingle. <laughs> we should work on that while we work on making an ad. Yes. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> okay. <sighs> My fun fact. On September 13th of 1987, Paul Lynch of Great Britain does 32,573 push-ups in just 24 hours. I don't even think I could do 20 push-ups in 24 hours. <laughs> You can do 20 push-ups in 24 hours. Not like real push-ups. Like real push-ups like in a day you can up. do it i don't i don't know i like me and push-ups are not friends we're gonna like, be doing that immediately after this recording no. just seeing how many push-ups we can get out of kylie <laughs> oh god <laughs> oh, okay what's your fun fact my fun fact is that on sem- september 17th also one of my friend nikki's birthdays hi nikki hi, i nikki. don't think you actually listen to this but i'm gonna shout you out you anyway. better listen to this Oh, dear. (laughs) So on Nikki's birthday, but in 1861, 
The first class of escaped slaves were taught by Mary Peak at Fortress Monroe, Virginia, which is now Hampton University. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. That's a feel-good like, ending to yeah, a crazy story. Yeah, that makes me story. happy. <laughs> it makes me happy, yeah. <laughs> well, as always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next week. Bye. Since you've gone,